Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, and if this is your first time with us, we welcome you, and so glad to have you with us today. If you're watching online, thank you for taking time to worship with us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, begin in verse 11. Let's all stand as we read God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, this words will be on the screen. You can follow along. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, if we're crazy, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, if we're sane, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, altogether, verse 21. For our sakes... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated. Father, have your way. Thank you for the testimony of Latrell. Thank you for, Father, not only are we a church that reaches Naples to the nations, but we thank you that the nations are coming to Naples. And Father, we pray that the words of our mouth, meditations of all of our hearts would please you in Jesus' name, amen. Has anyone ever accused you of being weird? Some of you, yeah. Some of you, like, you're, you're proud. You're, you're, like, odd for God, and it's like a badge of honor that you're just glad that you can be uh, weird for Jesus. You know, for centuries, however, people have thought that Christians were crazy, and I, I get some of it. You know, there are some pretty crazy Christians out there. There are some people who claim to be believers who say some very ridiculous things. Um, sadly, when skeptics... In our day, uh, think about Christianity. You'll, you'll hear words like Westboro Baptist thrown around. But, you know, if you really think about it, the Christian story is a little strange. 
especially if you get it from an outside perspective. I mean, here the Christian story uh, tells you that there's an infinite God who created the heavens and the earth, and um, he created all humanity. The first couple uh, was put into a garden, Adam and Eve, and they were created without any clothes on. And then the, the story of the Bible tells us there was a snake that talked them into disobeying God. And when they disobeyed God, they broke the world and everything in it, sending it into chaos. And yet God, having loved humanity, had a plan. Starting with, the, the, starting with one family uh, and a guy named Abraham out in the Middle East, he, through that line of Abraham, uh, would bring about the Savior of the world. And so after thousands of years of working through the family of Abraham, uh, there would be, through that line of a guy named David, God would send himself. Uh, he would enter into history, which is now almost 2,000 years ago. He would come as a human being, born to a poor, unwed virgin girl named Mary. He would live in abject poverty. He would live, however, a, a sinless life, a perfect life. He would perform miracles and told everybody that he was God, and yet at the age of 33 was unjustly and gruesomely murdered on a Roman cross, but three days later rose from the dead. And so if you want to become a Christian... You have to admit that you're an evil person. You have to admit that you cannot save yourself and you must surrender your life to this God man who died on a cross and who rose from the dead. And if you believe and surrender your life to this God man, that you will live in heaven forever when you die. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible story, that sounds a little bit like fiction. That sounds like a fairy tale, like mythology. And those in our secular world, when they think of Christianity, that's what they think. They think it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. But yet for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are believers, we have staked our entire lives on that story that to others seems very ridiculous. So Paul here is writing just a few years after Jesus's death and resurrection. He's writing to a group of believers who were from a town called Corinth. Most of these people used to worship idols. Uh, now they're worshiping Jesus. And in this epistle, he is reminding them of the gospel message. He, he would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that this message was of first importance. And so all throughout his writings, he reminds them of this story of what Jesus did. And he tells them about the love of Christ. And, and in chapter 5 in particular, he's talking about the urgency of the mission. He says in verse 11 that it's the, because of the fear of God we persuade others, that we have, been, uh, we have been reconciled to God, therefore we've been given a ministry of reconciliation and a message of reconciliation. And that message, that message of the gospel, is the only message that has the power to change lives forever. I mean, Latrell's life is changed forever because of that gospel message. And your life, if you're a Christian, your life has been changed forever, yet... Just like in our day, so in Paul's day, people thought he was nuts. People thought that he was crazy. Why would you live the way you live? Why would you preach what you preach? Why would you suffer the way you suffer? And Paul in chapter five is, is telling them that in light of what God has done for him, he could no longer live for himself. But he wanted to live his life for the one who died and was raised from death. That's who he wanted to live for. Paul staked his entire life on that message, and Paul never got over the gospel. You know, I'm afraid that in a lot of churches and around our land in America, that Christians who come Sunday after Sunday have gotten over the gospel. The gospel doesn't excite them. The gospel doesn't amaze them anymore. And we're going to talk about why that is. But for Paul, the gospel 
was something that constantly amazed him. And so in verse 21, he reminds us of what that gospel is. He does it in such a succinct way. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Martin Luther called this passage the great exchange. And in chapter five, verse 21, we see that Paul is teaching us that Jesus lived a life that I could not have lived. He knew no sin. He died a death that I should have died. He became my sin and and died for me. And that he won a war that I could never win, that we, because of him, can become the very righteousness of God. And so today, as we continue this series, we see that Jesus' sacrificial death, we see that he died a death that we should have died, that we deserve to die. And he did it for our sake as a substitute to satisfy the justice of God. It was for our sake. He became a substitute to satisfy the just demands of God. So let's just walk through that. Number one, our sake. Verse 21, he says, for our sake, for the benefit of us, because of us. You know, for centuries, people have argued and and asked, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Wars have been fought. People have been tortured. People have been exterminated in the history of the world over that question. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? The answer to that question, according to Paul, is it's you and I, it's you and me. It's for our sake. For our sake, we are the reason, we are the cause. It was for crimes that we have done that he groaned upon that tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. That's what the the writer says of the song. The Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus would come on this earth and die on the cross, he wrote this about about Jesus. He says in chapter 53, verse four, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years. Isaiah tells us why Jesus came. It's because of what we did. All of us are guilty before God. And the reason why some people hear the gospel and laugh, or the reason why some of you have not, are not amazed by the gospel is because you don't think you've, you've done that, that much wrong, that you're not that bad of a person, that you say, you know, compared to so-and-so, I'm not that bad. You know, a lot of people, we think of terms of how, how good we are in terms of somebody else. And so we say, you know, uh, uh, you know compared to Vladimir Putin, I'm a pretty good person. You know, compared to Adolf Hitler, I'm okay. You know, compared to this person or that person. But yet the Bible says in Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's indictment on humanity is that there is none righteous, no, not one. Every day we sin. We sin either consciously, we know what we're doing, or unconsciously, we're not aware. We We sin willfully or unintentionally. And you may not like to hear it, and I may not like to hear it, but the Bible constantly tells us this truth. We're sinners. We shouldn't hide that. We're sinners. Now, the question you might ask is, okay, if I'm a sinner, then what exactly is sin? I'm so glad you asked. Here's what sin is. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world that he created. Sin is rebelling against God by living without any reference to him. Sin is not being or doing what he requires in his word. Sin is going our way rather than his way away from his design. 
So sin is saying, you know, I'm just gonna live my life for me. I'm gonna do it my way. I don't care what he says. I don't care what the law says. I don't care. I'm not gonna live my life in reference to him. I'm just gonna do my own thing. I wanna let you in on a little secret. I'm, I'm fearful of heights. I, I'm scared of heights. Anyone else scared of heights? Like, I don't really like heights. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker. I do like some roller coasters. Like, I love the Barnstormer at Disney. It's a nice little ride. <laughs> yeah, Dumbo. <laughs> when you get like the rock and roller coaster, I'm in trouble. That's why I don't go to Universal. I, I, you know, I just can't do it. There are a group of people that, that, one of the things I just don't understand in life is this, is that why anybody would pay money to go in a perfectly good airplane and jump out of it. You know, there's a lady in one of my, in, in my starting point group on Wednesday, and she's jumped out of a plane nine times. And her husband made sure that I knew it was with a parachute. <laughs> I said, are you sure, buddy? <laughs> Could you imagine jumping out of an airplane, 20,000, 10,000, however far up they go, feet above the earth? Could you imagine jumping without a parachute? What, is, what happens to a person that jumps out of an airplane without a parachute? What do you call that person? Dead. Now, let's just say a person says, you know, maybe you just say, you know, I'm just going to go up on an airplane and I don't need a parachute. And basically you're saying, you know what, I don't, <laughs> I don't really live by the law of gravity. Um, I kind of live by my own rules. And so you jump out of a plane. Well, on one hand, you're disobeying a very specific rule in life, namely don't jump out of a plane without a parachute. But on the other hand, you are acting and living as if gravity doesn't matter. And so you act like if you were to jump out of an airplane with no parachute, you are acting like gravity isn't important and that there's no consequence if you disobey it. But listen, you and I, if you're sane in the room, would never believe that gravity is arbitrary. And it would be unreasonable to say that we can make a decision whether or not we have to obey the laws of gravity because gravity is something that we live our lives in every day. It is something that we live in reference to. And we know because of the law of gravity, which is as certain as anything else, that jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, trying to break the law of gravity is nuts. It's death. Well, we know that. But how come we don't think that way with God? See, when you and I don't live as if God is God, when we break God's loving law, when we fail to honor God for who he is, when we say or imply by our actions that he is of no consequence or importance in anything in our lives, when we fail to live up to God's standard, it always has deadly consequences. Just as sure as the law of gravity, even more sure is the one who created the law of gravity. And so when you rebel against him, when you don't live in reference to him, when you decide to do your thing rather than his way, the consequence of that is death. That's why the, Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. The result of sin, with every action, there's a reaction. The reaction or the reaction of sin is death. Someone has to die. Why? Because God is a God of justice. Now, we hear that word justice. There's a lot of, that's kind of a hot button word now. What does justice mean? Justice is rendering to a person according to their deeds. 
Justice is giving exactly what is deserved, nothing more, nothing less. And so God is a God of justice and sin is wrong. And so God must punish sin. Sin is an injustice. God writes the injustice with his justice and the right punishment for sin is death. Someone has to die. God cannot just allow uh, sin to go unpunished. God can not allow sin to be swept under the rug. His justice demands that every sin must be paid for. He can't wink at sin. He can't overlook sin. Every sin, every wrong must be made right. And I would dare say that you would agree with that. Because every one of us in this room has a sense of justice. Every one of us has a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And the reason why is because we're created by a God of justice. And so when we have been wronged, when we have been offended, when someone has been mean to our kids, when someone has done something that's ticked us off, when someone cuts us off on the road and tells us we're number one, we want justice to be done. We are outraged. We want people to pay for what they've done. But when we're the offender, we want mercy to be given, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So let's just imagine you're driving on Livingston and you're doing 95 and a 45. Cop chases you down because you're on your way to seed the table. He chases you down and he says, son or daughter, or he just says, ma'am or sir, do you realize you were doing 50 miles an hour over the limit? The punishment for that is you're going with me because you're going to go to the pokey. You're going to go to jail. I mean, if you do 50 over, that's, that's incredibly insane. And so he carts you away. That's justice. But let's just say the cop pulls you over and and you say, well, I'm headed to seat the table. I just wanted to beat everybody. I wanted to beat all these other people going there. And so I know that parking is hard. You know, I can't afford the valet. So, you know. And so the officer says, well, you know, I understand. Don't do that again. Have a great day. That's mercy. That's not getting what you, you deserve a ticket. I mean, and so whenever you've been pulled over, how many of you, when you've been pulled over, you, you say, I want justice, officer. Punish me to the full extent of the law. No. When you get pulled over, when I get pulled over, like, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I'm, a, I'm just a poor preacher. Can you help me? Can, can you show some mercy? I'm claiming mercy. How does God deal with that? I mean, in the criminal justice system, I mean, think about that. You know, every time I hear that phrase in the criminal justice system, I always think of law and order. You know, in the criminal justice system, there are two separate and important groups. The police who investigate the crimes and the district attorney who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories, boom, boom, you know. Jerry Bridges says that in the criminal justice system, there's always a tension between justice and mercy. Sometimes one prevails at the expense of others. No doubt you've heard that, seen that, witnessed that, experienced it. But with God, justice always prevails. 
His demand for justice must be satisfied. God does not exalt his mercy at the expense of justice. All sin must be punished without exception. With God, there is no such thing as mere forgiveness. There's only justice. So God's a God of justice. And every sin, the consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death. And so who is responsible for the death of Christ. Who's responsible for Jesus going on the cross? And, and I told you a moment ago that it was for our sake, but if you really get into the, the crux of it, if you really get into what the Bible says, it's not just for our sake, it's really for God's sake. God's holiness, his, his eternal separation from any degree of sin and our sinfulness are the reasons why Jesus came to this world. We had a need that only God could solve. We were in a predicament because God's justice demanded our death. See, listen, our need is not measured by the sense of the need. Our need is measured by what God is willing and has done to meet the need. And we, listen, we'll only see our need in light of, of what God has done for us. And so why is it that God's a God of justice and we are sinners and we decide to go our way rather than his way and we're rebelling against him. We are hostile enemy combatants. Why is it that a God of justice wouldn't just turn us all into crispy critters? Why wouldn't he just banish us to hell? Why wouldn't he just kill us on the spot? Why would God do anything to save us? The answer is because of his great love for us. That's what Paul talks about in verse 14. People are saying he's crazy. People are saying he's nuts for living the way that he lives with the urgency and the mission. And Paul tells him that the reason he lives the way he lives, it's the love of Christ that controls me. Now, it's not Paul's love for Christ, but it's Christ's love for God, for, for Paul that controlled him. It's Christ's love that captivated his heart. It's Christ's love that held him together. That word control literally means to be glued together. It's what glues me. It's what hems me in. It's what holds me together. This love of God was the motivating principle of his life, the modus operandi, the lens through which he saw everything in life. It's the love of God. And here's the, here's the beauty of the cross. The cross is the only place where the justice of God and the love of God meet. It's the only place. The cross is the expression, is the expression of God's wrath towards sin. But the cross is also an expression of God's love towards the sinner. That we are so bad that Jesus had to die, but so loved that he was willing to die. See, God's justice demanded, demanded our punishment for our sin. And God's love provided it. Now, we live in a day where people don't like to hear about the wrath of God. People don't want to hear about an angry God who hates sin. People don't want to think about that. I mean, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey said the reason that she left Christianity is because she didn't want to believe in a jealous God. We have a society that says it's all about love. It's all about love. God's a God of love. Love is God. God is love. It's ooey gooey. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about wrath. Talk about love. But here's the problem. If you don't understand the wrath of God against sin, you'll never appreciate the love of God for you. If you diminish the wrath of God, if you de-emphasize the wrath of God, 
If you deny the wrath of God, you're diminishing the love of God. And you don't understand. Tim Keller tells this illustration, and I think he does a good job with it. He, he says that, imagine you and your friend were by a bonfire, a huge roasting, raging fire. And you're just there, people are roasting marshmallows, and you and your friend are there, and you're standing in the glow of this, and your friend looks at you and he says, I just want to prove to you how much I love you. And he jumps into the fire and dies. You would say that? It's crazy. Something wrong with that person. It's horrible. Shame. He says, then imagine, though, you're, you're asleep in your home and your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids are you're there in bed and your friend walks by your house and your house is on fire and your friend knocks on the door, wakes everyone up, saves you and your wife out of the house, saves your kid out of their rooms, brings you outside. And as he is saving your family and gets them all outside, he dies in the fire, saving your family. You would say, truly, that man loved me. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just die on the cross as some example. He died on the cross to save you because you were dying. You were going to, to hell, and he took hell on himself so that you could have heaven for our sake. Listen, we have to understand that he didn't just do a good thing. He did what only he could do, a God thing, and dying for us and saving us, and he did it for love. Romans 5, 7, Paul says that one will scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would one might even dare die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still enemies, still hostile combatants, Christ died for us. He died for you. Not just because you're lovely, not because you're great. You were his enemy. That would be like you dying for Vladimir Putin. Would you want to do that? But yet, we were his enemy for our sake. Secondly, not only our sake, but his substitution. See, the only way that God can both love us and be just at the same time is this, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. That Jesus had to come in place of us. We knew sin, he knew no sin. He became sin so that we can become forgiven. Jesus came to be our substitute. He came and his death was in exchange for our death. Jesus, the completely perfect son of God, lived a perfect life, completely fulfilling the demands of God's law. And on the cross, God the Father treated God the Son as you and I deserve to be treated. He took our place. He took our condemnation. He became our sin. Now, it doesn't say that Jesus became a sinner. That would be untrue. But rather, Jesus represented us. He was the representative sin bearer. On the cross, he identified 100% with the sins of the world, and God treated Jesus as if Jesus was sin itself. See, God doesn't forgive by turning a blind eye. Forgiveness is costly. And so at the cross, we see not only God's love, but at the cross, we see the seriousness to which God takes our sins. And that's why he died. In verse 14, he says that one has died for all. Caiaphas, the high priest, said that one would die for the, the many. He didn't understand he was speaking about Jesus, and that's true, the one has died for the many. Verse 15, he says, for their sake, Jesus didn't just die for our sins, he died instead of us. He suffered our curse, our punishment, our shame, our sorrow, and he took upon him the wrath that we deserve. And so what we see, the Bible teaches all throughout, is it's salvation through substitution. 
the righteous for the unrighteous. The gospel is Jesus in my place. See, Jesus died for our sins. He died for every act of violence, every sexual abuse, every act of addiction, every betrayal, every lie, every act of selfishness, every act of pride, every act of greed and manipulation. Jesus on that cross became the alcoholic, the thief, the glutton, the addict, the pervert, the adulterer, the idol worshiper, and the self-righteous hypocrite. He became sin, and sin was gross. Why is it that he died on a cross? You know, Friday we're going to talk about this. A good Friday service, we're going to talk even more. Why is it that Jesus didn't just die in his sleep? Why is it that he had to go through what he went through? Because the cross is a physical reminder of how ugly and how gross our sin is. See, Jesus, before his crucifixion, would be struck. He'd beaten so many times he didn't even look like a human being. His back would be laid bare by a whip. He would be beaten so badly that his intestines would be protruding from his ad- abdomen. Then he was put on a, a, a Roman cross. He would have nine-inch nails put into his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns on his head. He would be horribly disfigured. He would hang there in shame, stripped of his humanity. And basically what we know is that he died of a broken heart. His heart exploded within his chest. Why? To show us how ugly our sin is. But not only the physical pain, but the spiritual torture. Tim Keller says that, All our sins were transferred to Jesus as he hung and died on the cross. Jesus received on the cross what we should have received. He doesn't feel forsaken. He is forsaken. He doesn't feel alone. He is alone. God's wrath is poured upon him as a substitute for our sins. And here's what you have to understand. Jesus' act of substitution, dying in our place, is what separates the gospel from all other religions in the world. All other religions say, do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Say this. Be this. Pray this. Chant that. And so the thought of religion in the world is that if you can do that well enough and often enough and sincere enough that maybe the gods or maybe God will accept you and maybe you'll get to go to paradise. Maybe you'll get to go to heaven. But how would you ever know you're good enough? See, the gospel is not what you do for Jesus. The gospel is what he has already done for you. He's done this for you. It's what he's done for us. Not what you do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. So we see it was for our sake that his substitution came. And here's the beauty. It led to God's satisfaction. Verse 18, Paul tells us that all of this, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his third day resurrection, all of this is from God. The whole plan of salvation was God's idea. The story that may sound crazy to you came from God. It may seem like foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And here's the the wonderful thing about it. The God who we offended is the God who made the first move. The cross wasn't plan B. The cross was plan A. And Isaiah tells us that it was the will of God to crush his son in our place. And so he says in verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Jesus' death in our place satisfied the righteous demands of justice. Justice said someone has to die. Justice says they are guilty of sin. Justice says there needs to be a right that is done to this wrong. Justice demanded 
for our blood. Justice demanded for our death. But Jesus came and met the demands of justice on our behalf. And he removed the barrier between us and God so that we can have a right relationship with him. And so in verse 19, all of this was God's idea. Jesus has reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled the world, not counting their trespasses against him. That God sees us no longer with the debt standing between us, but now our sins have been paid because Jesus has paid it all. And God's wrath is satisfied and you and I can be justified and we can live before God just as if we've never sinned. You know, when I sold my house a few months ago, I told you this story before, that I paid it off my house when I did that. And I got a letter in the mail from the mortgage company, North Point Bank, that said, Mr. and Mrs. Brumbach, your mortgage at this address has been satisfied. It has been paid in full. And what that meant is that I didn't have to send that bank any more money. No more payments. Now, I got another bank that needs money. (laughs) But that bank doesn't need any money because it's been paid in full. The debt that I owed has been satisfied forever. And I'll never, ever have to pay that again. And just as that debt was paid off For that house, so my debt of sin has been paid in full and no longer stands against me. There's nothing I can do that can add to what Jesus has already done because I am saved because God is satisfied in what Jesus has done. And that's why he says in verse 21 that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul didn't say we become righteous. He went further and says, we are the very righteousness of God himself. The old hymn writer said, near, so very near to God. Nearer I could never be, for in the person of the Son, I'm just as near as he. Dear, so very dear to God. Dearer I could never be, for in the person of his Son, I'm just as dear as he. This is why Paul wrote to the church of Colossae in Colossians 1.21. He says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's all of us in this room. Enmity, enemies of God, hating God. You say, I've never hated God. You have no idea the depth of your depravity. Alienated, cut off, doing evil deeds. That was all of us in this room. He is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. It's been made right. The debt's been paid. And he did it, why? In order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. You say, pastor, you don't know what I've done. Well, if you're in Christ, you're holy and blameless. When he sees me, he sees holy and blameless. When he sees you, if you're in him, he sees holy and blameless. He doesn't see your sin, he sees his son. And his son was enough to pay for your sins. And so if you are in the son, you are holy and blameless, just as the son is holy and blameless before him. Be satisfied. Let's end with this. You know, the whole idea of substitution, Jesus dying in our place for our sin, people laugh at it. Secular science folks laugh. 
And the reason why they laugh is because it goes against the grain of our pride. The reason why the world doesn't like this message is because it shows just how hopeless and helpless we are. None of us in this room want to think that we're hopeless. None of us in this room wants to see ourselves as being helpless. We, we don't, I mean, we don't want to feel like we need anyone or anything, especially in America and, and Naples. We're self-made people. We're DIYers. We're do-it-yourselfers. We fix our problems. We don't want anyone else to interfere. We don't want anyone else to give us assistance. That's why this message seems so counterintuitive. You know, last Saturday, I took a group and, and we, did, we did our Love Naples projects. And so grateful for those of you that participated. And so my group, what we did for Love Naples is we went to Chick-fil-A. We went to the new Chick-fil-A on Immokalee. And great place, new restaurant, awesome. Owners are fantastic. And we went there, and our job, we put together little candy bags with invitations uh, to our Easter services. And so we were giving them out in the drive-thru and giving them out inside the store. And, and on the outside, we thought, well, then we'd have a little fun. And the, uh, the owner gave us some, some, some coupons for free milkshakes or free frosted lemonades. And so we set up a little game outside, a little cornhole game. And everyone was really a winner. I mean, you, you, everyone's a winner, okay? And so the goal is to kind of get the bag, just hit the board, okay? Even if it doesn't stay, just hit the board, okay? Everyone's a winner. We'll move you closer, okay? You just basically, boop, you know, it's on. Everyone's a winner, Okay? And so we were, the problem is nobody wanted to play this game. We would tell people, I was out there wrangling people, hey, you want a you wanna milkshake card? You want a frosted lemonade? And people just walk on by, walk on by. Well, I saw this one guy coming out of his car. And I said, sir, would you like a coupon for a free cookies and cream milkshake or frosted lemonade? He looked at me. <laughs> He said, I can buy my own milkshake. I don't need your coupon. Now, if this was in Sanford where I came from, there'd be thousands of people lined up. I looked at my son, Andrew. My son, Andrew, looked at me and he says, well, dad, this is Naples. <laughs> but in reality, I just like the world. When it comes to this free gift of God's grace, we don't want it. Because either A, we feel like we need to earn it by our good works, and so it's earned, it's not given. Or, or B, we don't feel like we need it because we're not that bad of a person. Well, listen, Jesus didn't die on the cross to give you a way to save yourself. Jesus did all the work to save you, and he offers his salvation only as a gift. You can never earn it. If you try to earn it, you'll never get it. If you ask for it, he'll give it to you. You know, some people say, you know, you Christians, you are so weak. Jesus is your crutch. And I don't want to look at them and say, you don't know the whole part. He's not just a crutch. He's a stretcher. <laughs> because the only one who can carry the weight of my sin, the only one who can carry the weight of my guilt, the only one who can carry the weight of my life is Jesus. Listen, I can't even limp into heaven without Jesus. If Jesus didn't come along and if he didn't carry me there, I would never go. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary for you and me to be right with God. But it's a free gift. It's a gift that Jesus died 
to pay for. And so tonight, today, you either are gonna receive it or you're gonna reject it. My prayer is you would receive it. And some of you say, well, pastor, I'm already a Christian, I'm already saved. Well, great, praise God. Now you know. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation. If your salvation was up for you to, to keep or lose, you'd lose it. Your salvation is not up for you to keep or lose. It's up to him to keep and he keeps it. But if you're here tonight, today, and you don't know that you're saved, you've never given your life to Jesus, today's the day you can be saved. I'm not here giving away free milkshake cards, but I am giving away a gift. And that gift's a right relationship with God that leads to eternal life with God forever. And my prayer is, is that today you will take upon, you will receive in your life this free gift of forgiveness, this free gift of grace. Because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So would everybody just bow your heads? Everybody close your eyes. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's wandering around. If you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I'm like Latrell was. I know I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to put my faith in Jesus. I'm not sure. Maybe you're, right now, there's a, your, your heart's kind of beating in your chest and you got butterflies in your stomach and you're kind of just feeling nervous and scared. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You feel like the weight of the world's on your shoulders. Well, this morning, you can give your life to Jesus and I'm gonna help you do that. I'm gonna pray a prayer and if you want to, if you're ready, you can pray that prayer with me. Now, there's no magic in my prayer, but it's just you talking to God. It's faith. It's talking to God. However you want to word it, word it. But if you're here and you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity right now. Nobody's looking around. Would you just pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. God, that I've been living for myself. I know, God, that without you, I can be nothing and do nothing. But Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose from the dead. And so today, God, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you save me? I give you my life. I give you my heart. Everything is yours. God, save me. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, every head bowed. Father, I pray right now that those who just prayed a prayer like that, God, that today you give them courage and boldness to make it known. So no one's looking around. If you... This morning, just trusted Christ as your Savior. You know that you know that you just gave him your life. I want to ask you to do something courageous. No one's looking around. Would you just raise your hand as high as you can raise it? I mean, as high as you can. Say, I just trusted Jesus as my Savior. I see you. I see you. I see you all over the room. Praise God. I see you all over the room. Praise God. All right. You can put your hands down. Those of you who just raised your hand, about 10 or 11 of you, I want you to do something after this service. I want you to come down to the end of this service and talk to one of the pastors down here and tell them the decision you've made. All, every service, we've had multiple people trust Jesus as their Savior. So you're not alone. You're not going to be singled out or made to be embarrassed. You could just tell them, hey, today I gave my life to Jesus. Or maybe... You don't have time to do that. Maybe you could take that little connection card in the back and just fill out your name and say, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Put your phone number or email. We'll get a hold of you. 
God is moving. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for those people, those many people all in every part of this room that raised their hand and said they trusted you as their Savior. God, would they go out now and share it with others? Would they not be ashamed of what you've done for them today? God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay seated. Pastor Thomas is going to start a song. And about the middle of it, he's going to lead us to stand and sing with it. Just listen to the words. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.